You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio in New Haven. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into inspiring stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. A few weeks ago, just before we were all quarantined by the COVID-19 pandemic, I hopped on a train to Brooklyn to talk with two fabulous Jews in food in anticipation of the upcoming Passover holiday. Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Askwitz are the young Ashkenazi duo that make up Gefilteria, a cutting-edge food business. They reimagine old-world foods like gefilte fish and make them delicious and fresh again. We all sat down in Liz's living room to nosh on some classic European-Jewish-American foods and kibitz, that means talk in Yiddish, about old family recipes, the wide spectrum of Jewish cultures, Ashkenormativity, and they dished about what it's like to make great gefilte fish in huge quantities to ship all around the world each year. We also chat about liberation stories and family seders, as well as recipes, such as their delicious carrot citrus horseradish from their cookbook, Gefilte Manifesto. I hope this lively conversation brings you some much-needed connection and joy during this unusual Passover season in quarantine. Hi, Liz. Hi, Jeffrey. Hey, Tegan. Hi. Thank you so much for having me in your living room. So happy to have you here. So um, you went to Zabar's. I did. got some treats. Can you tell us a little on your table in your living room, what do we have here? Well, we've got a lovely selection straight from the Upper West Side of New York. (laughs) Uh, I'd say highlights include we've got some sourdough crackers with a vegetarian chopped liver mm-hmm. and some herring, some pickled herring, totally classic, one of my, one of my favorite Jewish foods. Uh, we have, of course, um, some sour garlic dill pickles, mm-hmm. which are very good. I'm they finding I really like them. And, um, and we've got some of those jelly rings, those fruit slice jelly things. The neon things yeah. that look like orange Yeah, there's no slices. fruit in them at all. I always think of them as the f- called fruit gels. Fruit gels. Not to be confused with the jelly rings. Oh, covered in chocolate. That's true. That's also. Joy the brand. Yeah. 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 <laughs> also. So what inspired you to get these neon fruit things? <laughs> well, you know, Tegan, uh, Passover is coming. Passover is coming very soon, and I really, I always associate those fruit slices with Passover. I think Liz was trolling me. I was, yeah, because they, you brings out feelings for you? Yeah, these are just one of those dishes, one of those Passover processed food boxes, packages that you just had to have in your house growing up in the New York area, many metropolitan areas. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, you couldn't have a Passover without chocolate-covered marshmallows somehow, uh, these fruit gels, these other foods, none of which were any good. None so of, bad. And it's crazy. Like, why would it, like, it's like you're cooking a whole Seder, a whole meal. Why would you, why, why would you just Top not? it off with this disgusting. Yeah, like, you just wouldn't make the, the dessert. <laughs> and like, it's like, oh, well, who can make a kosher for Passover dessert? It's like, uh, how about, you know, some stewed fruit, some fresh fruit. Uh, how about making, uh, you know. A sorbet. A, sor- oh, a, a sorbet. sorbet. That's a wonderful yeah. thing. Yeah, so so Liz just knows that when I see these fruit gels, I'm reminded of, of uh, everything that's gone wrong. Yeah. Really, <laughs> these are the things that I wanted as a kid that I wasn't allowed to have. Oh. Like my family didn't buy these, like the marshmallow, um, those like marshmallow sticks and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Yeah. yeah, so let's let's try some of this. Okay, these are thank sourdough you. crackers. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of some sort of typical Ashkenazi deli. 
food here? Yeah, I mean, chopped liver. I mean, I feel like I know every Passover started with, you know, tam-tams, these, you know, little matzo crackers, matzo crackers that were delicious. Those are fantastic. Those are very good. Tam-tams with chopped liver. Mm-hmm. And that was always the treat before the Seder began. Um, you know, is it um, chopped liver, is iconic Jewish food? Yes, perhaps that's why. Um, interestingly enough, you know, um, in uh, the work that Liz and I do, we've read about old Jewish practices uh, of, you know, come Hanukkah time, you'd slaughter a goose. Mm-hmm. Um, for to have a big Hanukkah goose, uh, fry the latkes in the goose fat, and you'd store some of that goose fat, and some families would store liver packed in that fat for Passover, just mm-hmm. to have the the special goose uh, goose liver on Passover. Right, one of those foods that you'd be preparing, um, uh, preparing that you'd be uh, storing uh, from a time of abundance to. A time when there's not that much coming from the ground. There's not as much available for Passover mm-hmm. to make sure you have a really incredible Passover. And so, um, you know, perhaps the, the chopped liver on Passover is a relic of that tradition. Mm. And vegetarian chopped liver is also not new. We, you, you, can, you, can tr- you can see it in older cookbooks from decades yeah. ago. It's not particularly new. And I think there's always like, I mean, Jewish vegetarianism has a super long tradition for sure. And uh, but also, there's always a search for parav foods in the Jewish tradition for foods that are neither meat nor dairy, right, right, right. because they can be eaten at any point. And I think of I think of vegetarian chopped liver as one of those parv classics. You know, it's right. sort of like you can put it out at meat; it looks like chopped liver. You can also even serve it at a dairy meal, even though it looks like chopped liver. Like it's something that kind of feels a little uncomfortable, and yet it it works. Yeah. You know, we were saying Jewish food, but I think like the whole reason I wanted to talk to both of you is that I appreciate that you very clearly distinguish that as Ashkenazic Jewish food mm-hmm. versus Sephardi or Mizrahi. Yeah. Um, and maybe you can explain a little because a lot of people aren't familiar with that. Like it becomes sort of standard for people to say Jewish and that means like white European Jewish. But it's mm-hmm. so important that we don't just like generalize. So can you explain a little like what does Ashkenazi mean and maybe also Sephardi and Mizrahi? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I would say start off that, uh, you know, we don't even like to use the term Jewish food straight yeah, up. We prefer to, to disambiguate, to differentiate that we are, we are, our families are of Eastern European Jewish origin. Ashkenazi refers to Jews of Central and Eastern European origin. We like to sometimes say the foods of the Yiddish speaking Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, the foods that we have out here are foods that are were commonly eaten by the majority of Americans because most of Americans are of Ashkenazi descent, and a lot of the Ashkenazi foods became uh, identifiably New York. So bagels and lox and pastrami sandwiches, the Jewish deli. Uh, a majority, uh, a minority of Americans are of Sephardic ancestry, American Jews, American Jews, yeah. and a minority in the world in general. Um, are of Sephardic background, and the Sephardim are originally from Spain, so or or Portugal, so of the Iberian Peninsula, and many were exiled uh, uh, during the um, the Inquisition and the expulsion of uh, Spain and Portugal, and they went to parts of the Ottoman Empire, parts of North Africa, the Netherlands, South America, and the Sephardic community dispersed, and um, and there are pockets of Sephardic uh, Jews today in Israel, today in the States in Canada and other parts of the world. And then there's this term Mizrahi, which means Jews of the East. It's sort of a modern term that doesn't really mean anything, but uh, there were plenty of Jewish communities that existed that were neither Sephardi nor Ashkenazi uh, in Iraq, in Yemen, in India, in China. 
um, mm -hmm. in Africa and these Jewish communities that don't fit into that Ashkenazi Sephardic binary. And it's actually an incredible, uh, robust, uh, you know, religion with people from all backgrounds. And Ashkenazi is our culture. Uh, we both grew up in families where either we spoke Yiddish or Yinglish, a Yiddish-English hybrid. And, um, and the foods are an expression of that culture that we both grew up with. And we both grew up in the New York area, which is sort of the epicenter of, mm -hmm. of Yiddish Ashkenazi culture. Right. A lot of people think about, you know, Jewish Ashkenazi food as being kind of bland, um, like matzo ball soup and brisket. And, uh, but you have here like all these pickled things. And, and I know a lot of what you try to do is, is get into like the old world freshness and bring it into the new world a little. Can you describe a little like, what, first of all, why does everybody think that Ashkenazi Jewish, Jewish American food is so bland? Well, there's a few things. So, and, and it, it's not a sound bite, but um, in the short run, food is always an expression of the land where people come from. And the culinary tradition of a people is going to be tied back to what was available. And I think it's really important to point out that Ashkenazi Jews uh, were mostly in Central and Eastern Europe, where you were dealing with a climate that had a shorter growing season um, and a limited amount of things that would grow as a result of that, you know? So in the summertime, you might have berries and you might have, uh, you know, cold soups made with fresh vegetables and you would be harvesting your pickles and your, your cucumbers to make pickles. Um, but in the winter, you were eating more like potatoes or the pickled things that you have in the basement or your root crops that you had left over mm -hmm. like carrots and beets. Um, and so one of the things that I think I just want to point out is that um, those ingredients just aren't seen as, as sexy, I think, by our culture. They're not what I call sunshine foods in the same way. Um, we're not growing oranges and lemons and, you know, uh, tomatoes that are bursting off of the vine. Um, the land doesn't necessarily give you those things if you're from Central and Eastern Europe. Um, so all that aside, it's um, the real issue is, is the transformation that happened when uh, Jews of Ashkenazi descent came from Central and Eastern Europe and came to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and the foods that they brought with them, obviously they adapted, they did their best to, to, to continue to make the foods that they, um, that they had made back home. But a lot of what happened is that people started to assimilate and they started to make those dishes less and less uh, from the old country. And they started making dishes um, that they also started cooking American food. And so those Jewish foods, quote unquote, the old country foods were relegated to holidays and to special occasions. And those special occasion foods are just a small sliver right. of the larger canon. And some of those are bland, some of those are not. We, I'd like to, we call them the brown foods, right? <laughs> because Brisket is brown, mm -hmm. matzo ball soup, golden, but in the brown family, right? Kugel, pretty brown. So these are the holiday foods. Um, and you don't, you know, when you're, when you're transitioning your culture, you may not bring over uh, the fresh berry dish that you right. eat for one month of the year, right? right. In the same yeah. way. So that's just one part of it. There's probably more. Yeah. I mean, there's so much you could say about it. So one part of this is gefilte fish which I know is sort of mm. part of your origin story of your partnership and, and work together. So right now we're in gefilte fish season. We're getting ready for, for deep, Passover. Deep what, what's going on with you all and making gefilte fish? And how did that get this whole partnership started? Wow. Well, I'll, 
I'll I'll jump in and get started talking okay. about the the jar of gefilte fish. Okay. So a yes. lot of people when they think of Jewish food and they think of Ashkenazi Jewish food, they think of the kosher aisle of the supermarket. So mm. how did these foods get bland and boring and all that? There's a lot of other things and other right, reasons. Right. One of them was that uh, um, the the uh, Ashkenazi Jewish immigration uh, basically took place uh, in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, just at the beginning of industrialization of our food system. And uh, and it turns out that Jewish foods, when they're industrialized, make life a lot easier for all the, you know, the many uh, homemakers that were stuck at home. Just like any home. other food, just, just like, like everything else. Just that like we every processed. other food. Yeah. And so all of these foods that you would, you know, there'd be stories of families. I mean, literally mm-hmm. the filter fish was the best example of this. Families would give up a bathtub in their homes, especially when they lived in a tenement, in a shared bathtub. And you wouldn't be able to bathe or shower. You'd have to borrow your neighbor's showers. Or in some cases, you'd uh, share a bathtub with a fish. And every time you had a bathe, you took the fish out and put it into a bucket just so you could make a filter fish. My that... dad used to do this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I bet. When I was really I little. bet. And then when I was older, he became really not kosher and put lobsters in the bathtub. Oh, we lived that's in amazing. What a beautiful <laughs> New York uh, Jewish yeah, story. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, that, uh, you know, the carpet in the bathtub is a children's book we used to read. This was what happened, right? And, you know, uh, in the mm-hmm. mid-century, you started to see the rise of jarred gefilte fish. And you started to see... You know, instead of using the, 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 you know, often we call it the carp in the bathtub, right? The carp. But there were other fish, white fish, pike. An interesting, uh, you know, um, piece of the story is that because you couldn't find the same kind of carp that was available in Europe, a lot of families or, or the same pike families would mix together different kinds of fish to try to recreate the flavors mm. of the past. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you started to see the rise of this jarred gefilte fish that, uh, you know, I mean, it looked really gross it's really and gross disgusting. Looking. It's like gray. It's not even brown. It's no, gray. It's like definitely gray. And gray. And that's and actually... Think about all the so- it. time it saved these women yeah. who used to have to go get a live fish. Right. Yeah. And kill it. it. And then the gray... Got it. And the gray is that's actually <laughs> the, the Asian carp that's used in the Great Lakes, Ugh. which is disgusting. It's a bottom-feeding fish. Uh, they used other cheap fish mm. uh, ingredients. They used all sorts of fillers. And very traditionally, families would mix in breadcrumbs or matzo meal into their gefilte fish to ex- stretch how far it can go. But that was also, if you're a family that couldn't afford, uh, you know, to have a full fish for your family, this is a great way of stretching it. But now thinking about trying to save money as a fish, you know, manufacturer, you can sneak in all this filler and it's, uh, and you make a product that really is gross, disgusting, uh, and uh, is perhaps, we say, the most uninspired item in the supermarket. Okay, but... You don't make this kind. You make no. a good kind. Well, so we both got together, uh, connected, you know, uh, years ago because we both found that we loved Jewish foods, uh, Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jewish, Jewish foods. foods. And and we found that our generation stopped making it. And in fact, Jewish delis were closing. My family had a gefilte fish crisis. We never ate jarred gefilte fish. My grandmother made it. She went into retirement. The place we used to buy fresh gefilte fish from in New Jersey closed. And so... What were we going to do? And so I had to make a filter fish for my family. And Liz never even touched the stuff because her family ate the jarred gefilte fish. And so we got oh, together yeah. and we said, we need to do something about our food tradition and, mm-hmm. and, and really our culture and our heritage. And we decided we were going to start with gefilte fish because it was the clearest example of how far this tradition has strayed. Right. And yet, yeah. how beautiful it can be when you think about those stories, those bathtubs, those those balabustas, which is a Yiddish word for this homemaker that, you know, could do it all. And so we started cooking gefilte fish together. And eventually we started making that, making gefilte fish that we would sell 
to New Yorkers. And eventually we started making it a gefilte fish that we would sell in stores and ship around the country that was reflected our values. It was sustainably sourced. We didn't put much filler in. In fact, ours is gluten-free. It doesn't have any of those breadcrumbs or matzo meal. Ours is non-GMO. Ours uh, uses, you know, not just sustainably sourced fish, but higher quality fish. And that became really important to see ourselves reflected in this beautiful tradition. And that was the beginning of a longer journey of really kind of trying to revamp and revitalize and reimagine our, our larger food tradition. And so how you started with the gefilte fish and then what were some of the other foods that you started learning about and realizing like, oh, this doesn't have to be bland and gross, but there's like this whole tradition behind it. I mean, I, you know, I, I want to qualify all this to say that we, the reason we even started this is because we knew it didn't have to be bland and gross. So a lot of what we felt we were doing was being translators to our peers, to our colleagues and pointing out to them that this didn't have to be bland and gross. And sometimes it was as simple as sharing something homemade, right? So as opposed to from a jar. So borscht, the beet soup, it doesn't have to be made with beets. Um, this, was a, this was a soup that you could find on the shelves of supermarkets like next to the gefilte fish in jars. Um, and it was kind of this like pale beet liquid that was right. very unappealing. Um, completely not something that a kid would ever want to touch. Um, let alone an adult. It, it's truly the least least appealing soup in a jar I could a picture. Um, <laughs> and you make borscht from scratch, and it's one of the best, most flavorful, colorful soups. Um, it's earthy, it's sweet, it's sour, it's all the things that you want out of a soup. So that's just such a simple example of if somebody grew up with that that in a jar and they never had it homemade, well, of course they didn't know it was good. Um, so some of what we had to do was just share with people what it tasted like when you made things from scratch. That's not everybody. Some people we had to convince. Um, I think that... Um, I think in short, we were very interested in what it looked like to deindustrialize our foods mm -hmm. and to sort of de-Americanize, re-ethnicize this food tradition, right? A lot of Eastern European Jews who spoke Yiddish uh, weren't really, uh, until the 1950s, even considered white Americans, right? They were considered to be uh, ethnic in, in, in various different ways. The foods were considered mm -hmm. to be smelly and stinky and... Uh, and dangerous. And, uh, dangerous. Pickles themselves were so garlicky that uh, in a time when, you know, Americans were eating graham crackers, when they were eating simple bland foods, cornflakes, the early 20th century... Pickles were seen as devil's food, and the, and the, the, these um, Jews who came to this country were eating all these smelly, stinky foods were seen as others, as foreigners. And mm -hmm. you saw that the 20th century was this uh, making Jewish foods bland, was making them American in the worst way possible. And so uh, trying to, you know, for us, both bring back elements of that culture that were lost and then revisit foods like pickles, which we never even thought about. Uh, growing up, both of us went to Jewish delis. We, you know, ordered a pastrami sandwich. The pickle, of course, came with it. It was free. Who thought about the pickle? Uh, you know, and then it turns out that uh, a good Jewish pickle is uh, an Ashkenazi pickle is made in a saltwater brine. It's fermented. It's live cultured. It's trendy and of the moment right now, right? It's this probiotic it's food. <laughs> but it, and it helps you digest yeah. your pastrami sandwich. And it doesn't just cleanse your palate from bite to bite, which it does. It is amazing. But... 
it actually helps your digestion. And we both grew up thinking that, being told that as Jews of Ashkenazi descent, we were destined to a life of bad digestion. Mm. And it turns out that some of the wisdom was already in, baked into the tradition. Mm. Even yeah. gefiltevish, you eat it with horseradish, just like sushi and wasabi. And so we were very interested in finding what was the wisdom that was lost when you translated a culture and a food tradition from one land to another. And that's sort of the root of a lot of the work we've done. Yeah, it's so great. And I appreciate you talking about it like that, because I think, um, you know, we live in a time where like a lot of people whose skin is white have assimilated into the American country culture. And that the idea that of whiteness in certain ways, is, you know, race is a construct. And so that by remembering these foods of our individual heritages, it's a way to actually like break down a piece of the things that are at the root of racism. And so um, I really appreciate you're doing that. And I also love this part about many years ago, I sort of realized like fermenting and pickling was part of my cultural mm-hmm. heritage. Like I'm always sort of aware as a chef about like what foods am I cooking and, you know, am I appropriating something or am I being influenced Mm -hmm. by another culture? And I try to be really sensitive to that living in a place where I can like get foods from like almost every, you know, like so many different places. But I sort of had this realization. I was like, what are my heritage foods? And I was like, ah, these things that everybody thinks are so cool right now, like making sauerkraut and pickles and fermenting are part of my heritage. And it was like this really, I don't know, it made my heart swell, you know, it was like this really beautiful moment. And, and I just, I think that's why I was first drawn to the food that both of you are cooking and, and how you're approaching it. Because um, yeah. I think that it's it's really important on like many different levels, and including the one of like not letting these traditions die. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so beautiful to hear. It is. And, and what's funny is there's this term that people throw around called Ashkenormativity, which is this idea in the Jewish community that Ashkenazi traditions are the traditions right. and anything else is sort of silenced or, you know, so other that nobody really is aware of it. And we also feel like even within the Jewish community that by re-ethnicizing or taking back these these foods and talking about them as Ashkenazi foods and really claiming them from the land that they're from and the peoples that they're from, we're combating Ashkenormativity, this force that tells us that Jewish culture is, is you know, bagels and locks, right? We, it's not, right? Jewish culture is completely diverse and a million different Mm -hmm. things and so internally that there's also i think a conversation happening and it's nice to be able to make that distinction uh even internally because we have friends of lots of different jewish backgrounds and we don't definitely don't want to silence their traditions either and also the watered down ashkenazi culture that everyone's getting i mean yiddish has was stamped out you know in all these ways i mean i prefer the term falafelization of what's happened is that the the jewish community has been so reoriented around the connection to israel that you know things like hummus and all the salads and things like that have become standard and chopped liver when you how often are you seeing chopped liver on a table right so we've seen this Mm -hmm. this sort of american milk toast boring jewish culture that like offers so little Mm -hmm. to anyone and so uh, if we can all be so deeply rooted in our uh, traditions, and that goes for our friends of North African Jewish descent, Moroccan right. and Tunisian Jews, right. and our Everybody. friends of Iraqi, our friends who are making kube and reviving those traditions. Like, that's all part of what is a more dynamic and robust Judaism in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other piece of this is that when we center it around Israel, then those a lot of those foods are of Palestinian and Arab yeah. um, origin, and then claiming them as Israeli and Jewish is then erasing those people and heritage as well. And erasing the Jews of those lands and the Jews of Iraqi descent and of Yemenite descent too. And those foods have just became Israeli and then 
get distanced from their own as well. And there's a push to try to keep those um, stories alive right now in Israel because they just got lumped together as part of this sort of uh, I mean, trendy global cuisine that is uh, not telling their story also. And right. so it's, it's fascinating, all the different layers of, of appropriation and layers of stories that need to get uh, uh, you know, told yeah. and, and they got lumped together. So um, before we jump into talking about Passover, I'm sort of curious about how doing this work is impacting both of you. It's been maybe four or five years. Eight years. Eight years. We launched in 2012. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. This this month, 2012. Okay. March 2012. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. And so, we were cooking a year and a half before that. Right. So we've been doing this for... Cooking and kibitzing. Yes. We were talking and yes. scheming and planning. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yes. Since like 2010, really. Yeah. 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 How has this impacted you in terms of like your connection with Jewishness, with your families, with your community that comes together and eats with you? What are, when you look back over like these eight years or where you're going, what are some of the things you notice? One of the things that I feel is that um, it's really grounding. It's really, really grounding professionally and personally to claim a real mission and, and a mission that is tied to my identity. I think it's really interesting to, um, to be the gefilte fish person, right? There's only a couple of us and we're them, right? And, and, and people know that and we are those people, but, and, and I find it, I, I find it oddly grounding because it feels like it feels, I don't want to say it feels important in the way that it's more important than anything else, but I, I feel a sense of purpose because of it. And I also find that, um, I don't know, I never would have ever anticipated that this would have resonated with people the way it has. And so the fact that it has again, again, and again, and again, over all these years that we're still doing this all these years later, and that we continue to find new material and new stimulation and new recipes that we want to explore, new stories and new trips we can take, um, and new articles we can write. um, I mean, that's also really powerful and really, it's very, you know, it makes me feel very rooted because it's... um, it's like a really deep dive and I'm still diving, you know? So I feel that way. Yeah. I have a, a, a number of uh, feelings that come up with that question. Uh, one is well, I, this work brought me to Eastern Europe, which is where my family's from. I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And, um, and when we were first working on our cookbook, the Gefilte Manifesto, Liz and I both separately traveled to Poland and, um, uh, you went to some other countries in that first trip, and we, uh, or just Poland, and went to go and discover, the, you know, wh- what went wrong, what happened, why, why did Gefilte end up in a jar? Why do people laugh at these food traditions uh, in this country, but um, you know, in Poland, they're you know still part of the culture, and uh, and that was beginning uh, a journey that took both of us to Eastern Europe uh, a number of times. I've I've been going back more and more. I um, uh, just partly um, to connect with uh, where my family is from, and uh, and it's to be honest, in terms of my identity, it's uh, complicated things. I grew up being told that my family wasn't Polish, that we were just we were Jewish Jews living in Poland, and and going to Poland and going to the market and um, you know meeting all these Polish people who aren't Jewish who eat gefilte fish every Christmas and, <laughs> and call it Jewish fish or uh, eating uh, something called chalka, which is challah in all the bakeries or, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, going and being served herring and drinking uh, fermented drinks, a uh, 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 fermented beet drink, which is basically borscht, uh, a drinkable borscht or russell in Yiddish or, uh, 
you, I realized how Polish my family was mm. and, um, and it made me have reevaluate and think about mm. the connection my family mm-hmm. had to the land and then how, what the self authorship uh, of the story yeah. of our story and of our identity was in this country. And I, how to confront that, and um, and uh, I, I strangely feel deeply connected to Polish people and and to that culture and to that cuisine, and uh, and it serves as a way of really informing a lot of what we do to this day. I mean, even I'll use one example is the relationship that Polish people have to mushrooms. Um, every summer and fall, different mushrooms are. Uh, um, ready to be foraged, and if you grew up in Poland or you grew up in Lithuania, or you grew up in parts of Russia, you Belarus, wherever you go foraging, and of course, the, I mean it's free, but it's also this is your leisure activity. This is how you get the most delicious mushrooms, and um, and we think about um, Liz and I always talk about mushroom barley soup at the deli. It was always the worst soup. No one wanted the mushroom barley mm. soup at the deli. And we started making it after visiting Poland with uh, these dried porcini mushrooms, these boleto mushrooms from from Poland uh, that were foraged. Uh, and, and and if you go on the side of the roads driving around this time of the year, there's just people selling foraged berries and mushrooms all right. along the road. It's amazing. But we started making with this dried boleto mushrooms uh, and really high quality mushrooms, you know, here. And the soup is fantastic. It is it's amazing. One of the best soups. It's incredible. And we've been making it with those button mushrooms. It's like, of course the soup stinks, you know? Like, this is awful. And, uh, and so the, the, something about the, the, the connecting with the smells of this place, it just really made me rethink so much of yeah. what um, my, like my family story is in so many ways. And also even thinking of my own grandfather who survived before he was captured by the Soviets and sent to Siberia. He survived in the woods. And, you know, how many Jews survived in the woods during the Holocaust and um, how much knowledge did they have of what they could eat and... Growing up in this part of the world, this was just something that uh, I couldn't even—I couldn't have fathomed this growing up in the suburbs mm-hmm. of New York. And so, uh, that is something that has really inspired me through this work. Yeah, that's so great. I had an almost identical experience thinking that my grandmother was Dutch, and I thought all of these foods were Jewish. And then I went to Holland, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> these foods are Dutch." <laughs> yeah, that's how it like, is. Oh, it's really yeah. funny. That's why people yeah. always want to know. What's really the difference between Polish food and Jewish food? And we're like, please stop asking us that yeah. question yeah. because we it, that is a, like, that's a course that we yeah. could teach that will not satisfy you yeah. anyway because we're not going to draw lines yeah. and we're not going to make boxes that you can put things yeah. in. It doesn't work. I will say one of the most humbling moments of my life was when I went to the Krakow Culture Festival. So this Jewish festival uh, that celebrates uh, Yiddish and Jewish culture and. And I went and I was invited to go teach how to make pickles. Oh and I went as this New Yorker, right? New York pickles on the Lower East Side, crossing the land, see, right? This is all part of the culture. I, I worked on a Jewish pickle farm up uh, Northwest Connecticut. I went there and I had all 70 year olds, like 30, 70 year old Polish ladies didn't speak English. I had a translator and I start presenting all about fermentation and, and saltwater pickling and all of this stuff. And they've all been making the same pickles their entire lives. And they all were like hoping that I would have something new to share. And it turns out that I had more to learn from them. And it it became a pickle discussion group. And I learned all of their techniques. And I was writing them down and sharing with them what I do. And they were just like, you put that much salt in and that much garlic? And uh, and, uh, I I realized that we share this culture. And the fact that the pickles are associated with Jews in New York is that the Jews were the ones who just brought them here. But they were brought, they were Slavic. And they were... (laughs) And so um, it was just, uh, it was embarrassing and also fruitful. I, I learned a lot. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Passover. Passover. So it's yeah. coming. 
Yeah, um, we know. So tell me a little about your Passover food traditions that you do now. Well, you know, it, it has to be mentioned that we, we produce gefilte fish commercially. Right. So our professional tradition is to make sure that we make enough gefilte fish and get it to all the places it needs to go. And it's a total trip and it's crazy mm. um, because... Uh, manufacturing large quantities of uh, high-quality product is a journey to go on. So uh, that's happening very soon. Yeah, so talk a little about it. This is good because people don't know how much work goes into actually like sourcing good ingredients, finding a place to produce it. Tell us a little. Yeah, well, we have a kosher certified facility. So one of the trickiest pieces is that we can only produce when the facility has been changed over to Passover mode, which I think is probably the Hard, is one of the hardest things because the timing is tight, you know, so you really need to get the fish deliveries from the Great Lakes to line up with Passover production time. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just a logistical game and we have developed it over many years, but you know, you still have to do it. And, um, we're really proud to have a OU kosher certified product and, um, we're really proud to, you know, we start with whole fish and it's great. Um, but it's definitely a wild journey. It, there, it doesn't get easier, I'd say, um, every year. Um, because Mother Nature is Mother Nature, right? And, um, and, there was that, and there was that year when the lake, because uh, uh, since traditionally uh, gefilte fish is made from, from, from lake fish just because the Jews in Eastern Europe uh, actually were very heavily involved in the, in, uh, the carp trade. And, uh, and so we get a lot of our fish from the Great Lakes uh, and uh, come when there's an early Passover because it falls different times uh, every mm-hmm. year because of the lunar calendar, we uh, couldn't get any whitefish. Uh, or any pike because the lakes were completely frozen over. Wow. And um, and there was a whitefish shortage. And, I mean, we weren't the only ones suffering, yeah. you can imagine. <laughs> yes, and it made things very tough and very tight, especially because there's a limited window when all these facilities are kosher for Passover. Right, and for people who don't understand, that means that they've done this like massive cleaning and and, and certification that everything is like... There's no chametz, there's no leavened product, right? So yeah. if they, they might normally use some sort of a, a leavening product in, in something that's made in the facility, it all has to be cleared out and all the machines right. are cleaned and everything. So, yeah. We're, so it's tricky. It's, so it's you're, you're like pr- producing this at a big scale and how is it getting shipped out? Like, is it... So, so we um, make a product that is blast frozen uh, right after we make it um, because there's a limited shelf life available. We don't want to have a product that is canned or jarred. Correct. And so we want to make sure we can get it out. So we started doing um, a high quality blast freeze. And what we do is we, you know, this, this week and next week, we're really going to be doing all of our deliveries and we're going to be delivering to uh, our some stores and, and uh, online uh, retailers that are based in the New York area. And then we're going to be going to Boston and Philly. Philly. Yeah. And um, a lot of our gefilte fish flies all around the world through um, a couple of online retailers. One is called Grow and Behold. And they are a kosher, pasture-raised meat company. They mm. really match our values. And, uh, and they... You know, because it's so hard to get this product, uh, a meat, a kosher meat that's sustainably produced, that's ethically sourced, uh, that treats the animals well, uh, that then basically uh, they ship their meat and, and our gefilte fish gets lumped in there and gets shipped to people in Tennessee and Oklahoma and places you can never, would never imagine. Uh, and then also uh, another company called Chala Connection, which creates these Jewish gift baskets. Uh, and they do a lot around Passover. Right. And, and they'll they, sell it out with send it out with maybe horseradish so you get the whole Mm. experience you know yeah and then of course there's brick and mortar retailers that have it too it's impressive that you've kept it going i would imagine it's a little exhausting (laughs) 
<laughs> but but that I people mean, are very grateful to have it. People go nuts for it, man. <laughs> We're grateful. We're grateful people. People really are our customers are very loyal and I think part of it is that once you've had good gefilte fish, you cannot go back. Mm-hmm. You cannot go back. So it's good gefilte fish or no gefilte fish and nobody wants to give up gefilte yeah. fish. You know, people want to it's it's a traditional food. It's really yeah. meaningful. We will always say that we encourage people to make it themselves. True. And Absolutely. you know, we would love to not be in business anymore and to have everyone making gefilte fish because it's that true. to us is a more beautiful vision of what Jewish life is. Uh, and, um, and so that's why when we put out a cookbook, we, you know, had, you know, we have a hundred recipes. Most of them are not gefilte fish. Only two or three are, but we put in gefilte fish recipes, um, that, because we wanted to encourage that. And same with grating your own horseradish. And so for us, I think the past few years has been, um, Passover has been an opportunity. This is when most people are tuned into Jewish culture, mm-hmm. tuned into, um, their family traditions and, and also looking for inspiration. So this is when we're, you know, putting out recipes. This is when we're um, ourselves looking to, you know, to put a twist on some classics or resurface old ideas or old ingredients and, uh, and you know, put them into a new form. And so uh, we ourselves have used Passover sort of as a testing ground mm-hmm. for our, uh, you know, um, new expressions of Ashkenazi cuisine. Yeah. Uh, and so every year, um, I think we're, uh, we're looking for something new. And we're always looking for yeah. something new, yeah. My one thing I started making, so matzo brai, you know, where you take matzah, break it up and soak it in eggs. So I grew up eating it sweet, mm-hmm. like French toast. But as an adult, I started making it savory as well. Mm-hmm. And so I made one called um, bialy brai. So for people who don't know, bialis are like a little round circle of dough with onions cooked into the middle. So I made bialy brai with, I made, you know, soak the matzah in egg and milk. And then I put, um, I think I cooked some onions first and then put poppy seeds in and I actually added a little fennel which is totally not like a bialy but it gives it sort of that yummy sausagey taste well, uh, um, and I think yeah. I did red onion for color yeah yeah. It, was, yeah it was so delicious that sounds so that's my so new-ish good. I did it a couple years ago Ooh. but that's sort of my new twist for, for Passover I love it I love that it's great for us this is the year of kremslach oh What's yeah kremslach? we're making kremslach a thing what is this We'll see if we can make it a thing. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> we're working on it. Kremslach is sort of um, the cousin of matzah brai. Okay. Uh, yes. It is, yes. Uh, it's a it's a it's a pancake made of matzah meal, which is just ground matzah, and cottage cheese, and egg, and some milk, and you um, make these pancakes. They're, sweet, you know, salty. Little cinnamon. You can make them okay. sweet. You can make them salty, uh, savory. I actually think we could make some really interesting savory. Yeah, ones. yeah, yeah. But yeah. do you want to have a savory pancake? Matzah brai is a whole different beast. I don't know. The point is, uh, I grew up with these. They were uh, called Kremslach, classic uh, food. One of the ones that's not as well known. Um, matzah for Passover. Bride. Yeah, for yeah. Passover. You make it because you have, you know, you have either leftover matzah. You'd, you'd crush your matzah. Come 1930s, you'd have matzah meal. When the matzah industry realized, hey, we got all this crushed matzah. Let's make <laughs> some money. Which is up. just the weirdest thing. It's to take flour, cook it into matzah, grind it back into flour. It, it's one of those things that I think is like kind of nutty. But. Well, I think a way to think of it is more like, <laughs> it's think of it like breadcrumbs. Yeah. It's just breadcrumbs. And matzah is just bread. It's unleavened bread, unleavened breadcrumbs. Yes. And we can use that language and it makes sense because you have matzahs that didn't, that broke and they yes. turned them into matzah meal right. or you have, you know, all these crumbs and things and it's a way of making money all year long in the matzah business. <laughs> and so instead of using breadcrumbs to make all these ingredients, to make um, kugels and to make all these classic Jewish foods, you know, uh, you see all these recipes that were put out. Some of them by companies like Manischewitz, mm-hmm. which makes matzah, 
started calling for matzah meal. So all year long, people are buying matzah meal for Jewish recipes. I mean, even matzah balls are the great example of that. That was a post-Passover food. Leftover matzah, you make a matzah ball. And now there's all this leftover matzah meal. Now there's a whole matzah meal industry. Now matzah balls, delis all around, diners all around New York sell matzah balls. So I love that you have a matzah recipe in your cookbook Mm -hmm. so people can make their own matzah. That's fun. And... um, you have a carrot, citrus, horseradish. Oh yeah, that that's our famous really recipe. Really good. Tell me about that. That's that's among our most favorite recipes, I'd say, um, and most popular recipes. So when you make gefilte fish in the traditional way, which is that you grind up your fish and your onion and your egg, and then you poach the gefilte fish in a fish stock, mm-hmm. part of what's in your fish stock is carrots. So you've got these these cooked carrots, um, and the carrots would traditionally be sliced up and put atop each piece, each canal of gefilte fish, also known as the... Oh, it's the yamaka. You're, the yamaka, you're, you're yes. feeding me that. The okay. yamaka. Um, so, um, so we, in our gefilte fish, we do not poach our gefilte fish. Um, we bake <gasps> it. Yeah. And, and yet, we missed the color. We missed the yamaka on top of the... Uh, the gefilte fish so we tried to find a way to reintegrate the carrot and that was the starting point of the idea for the carrot citrus horseradish and it's so bright there's a ton of lemon zest a ton of lemon juice in it it can be as spicy as you want it to be but it i find it it tends to be a bit spicier than a a beet horseradish right Mm -hmm. because beets have a sweetness to counteract carrots are much less sweet um and um it's just it's so colorful it i I love that recipe. I mean, people people eat it all year round. They put it, spread it on sandwiches and stuff. It's not just yeah. a Passover food. It's great because in your cookbook, you know, you have, like, you're talking about these lacto-fermented recipes, which are wonderful and amazing, and take a bunch of time. And then you have a bunch of quick pickle vinegar pickles. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that sort of, mm-hmm. like, does that. And I think it's it's an easy way for people to add something to their Passover table or holiday table that isn't, like making a huge main course but it can make such a big difference to have like these side dishes or condiments mm-hmm. that take something from being like sort of bland to having all this like a yep. punch like the the sourness the saltiness the sweetness so also when you make horseradish at home um you can grind your horseradish to whatever sort of fineness that you want and one of the problems with jarred horseradish that you buy is it's almost like a paste and I think that you miss some of the texture, and so you miss some of the flavor of the bite, of a little bit of the bite into the horseradish. So I love to make my own horseradish because I just want just a little bit more texture in my horseradish. Also, little known fact, um, well, horseradish loses its strength over time, and yeah. so a lot, of the matzo, a lot of the commercial horseradish sold all year long is made with mustard oil to keep it extra spicy, oh. but come Passover mustard seeds are uh if for a certain category or considered a certain category of food called kitniot that are not allowed by some jews of eastern european jewish descent which means that the horseradish does not have that and since there's a lot of horseradish produced for passover some of it's made well in advance of the holiday it's not as sharp or spicy Mm -hmm. as homemade a couple days beforehand absolutely so if you're looking for that sharpness you need to make it from scratch all right i'm inspired we often get a horseradish and my mom will like peel it with a vegetable peeler and we'll put it on the seder plate but i think it's i like adding the vinegar and the you know once it hits the air it also will lose its potency pretty quickly so um that's why kind of pickling it quick pickling it with sugar and the salt and the vinegar it works yeah so the other thing i was really curious about is that for me passover is such a powerful holiday because 
it's this remembering of the story of liberation and of oppression and liberation and freedom. And it really affects me as someone who lives in this world where I am surrounded by so many other people who have experienced genocides and oppression and have and are facing those things. And I'm really interested given like how thoughtful both of you are and, and the lives that you're leading, how you relate to Passover and do you think about paying homage to other people in this world who face oppression and trying to be liberated or get free? Good question. It's a great question. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about Passover is um, the Seder itself, which just is just the, the not just a dinner, right? There's the, the meal itself, but there's Passover as a, uh, it's really what it's about is a telling and retelling of a story. And uh, the Passover uh, Seder plate, which is this symbolic plate, has um, sort of food plays a role of storytelling. Uh, it's very unique. Not many cultures have such, just such a symbolic food tradition. And so right, the salt water on the Seder plate symbolizes the tears and the mortar uh, that was used to build, uh, you know, to put bricks together in ancient Egypt is symbolized by this delicious sweet thing called haroset, and, um, which doesn't look <laughs> that much like mortar, yeah. but it's delicious. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of power to that, and right. uh, um, and thinking about these symbols, and and in you know more recent years, the seder plate has been has become uh, uh, sort of a, an opportunity to talk about other stories, right? To bring olives on the Seder plate to talk about the Israel-Palestinian conflict, to uh, bring uh, oranges on the Seder plate to talk about, um, the, you know, uh, women's struggles and, and the, that story, uh, to add... Because the rabbi said a woman will be on the bima as soon as a, a orange will be on the Seder plate. But bread yes. is yeah. on the Seder plate. Oh, yeah, no, I forgot. Not, story. Yeah. No, an Sorry. orange. And so that's yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sort of it, it, orange, exactly. Right? And so, and there's being... No bread on the Seder plate. <laughs> no, Liz, that would be... No, guys, I'm not wrong. There's a part of the story that has to do with bread. I swear really? to you. I wow. swear. Okay, that would be a very subversive That's Seder the whole point. Oh, that was the whole God. point. That the so, bread doesn't belong on a Seder plate. That's how much. Right, So I didn't grow up with Passover being... Really, it was just a way of telling our family story over and over again and eating our family foods over and over again. In more recent years, my partner, who, you know, someone who uh, came uh, out of this kind of more activist Jewish tradition, and, and Passover was a chance to talk about bigger questions of freedom and to, to, to raise these questions, to talk about what liberation means, to bring in other stories. And, and, uh, and I started recently thinking far beyond just, you know, the foods that we cook and eat and uh, more about what the potential for this kind of, what this holiday and these symbols mm -hmm. can actually mean. And um, so I'd say I'm sort of in the beginning part of this journey of sort of expanding my own Passover worldview. Uh, and it, it, it's pretty remarkable uh, to kind of reflect on the Passover that I used to celebrate and, um, and how devoid of that kind of, that meaning it was. However, I am reminded of so my grandmother, uh, Grandma Ruth, who features prominently in the Gefilte yeah. Manifesto cookbook and who inspired me so much, I remember, um, you know, she's a survivor uh, of the Holocaust, and I remember one Passover years ago, a fam uh, family friend of ours who was an African-American man came, who was, was a descendant of, um, uh, of slaves, and, a sl uh, and he uh, was so moved, um, both at our Seder, hearing the story, the retelling of the story, and then also hearing my grandmother who just told her stories of survival and, mm -hmm. and, and of the Holocaust, that he shared his own family's story uh, and, and his, uh, you know, family's liberation uh, 
story as well, and 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 also the story of the larger you know African American community, and uh, and it was the first time I really kind of saw the power of what the storytelling can be, and and uh, I still think of that, and I think of my grandmother talking with Andre and the two of them, uh, sharing their, their these these struggles, and in that in the context of this ancient tale of of liberation, and uh, I. I want that to be a blueprint for Jewish life going forward in some way. Yeah, I love to hear that your grandma was telling her story of of survival through the Holocaust because I um I started doing that actually after my grandmother stopped being able to come to our seders because I don't think they really wanted to talk about it so much in that you know during a holiday. But I started actually like reading the names, like naming all of these people in our family and saying their names and, and talking about people who had died and people who had survived. And so it's great to hear that your grandma was actually sharing that as well and other guests at your seder. Yeah, I, I would say it wasn't necessarily intentional that it was Passover. My grandmother just never doesn't tell the story. And I uh, was I had two sets of grandparents, one set that never told their story right. of survival and one that felt it was imperative to always tell the story. Mm-hmm. And no matter what, even when I was a four-year-old and then had nightmares. Yeah. But yeah. I, in retrospect, am so grateful that I had the opportunity to hear. And, and, and I didn't just hear the stories of survival. I heard stories of life before the war, too, which is also rare. Because mm-hmm. I also heard about the plum trees uh, in, in my grandmother's yard and I, the cow that she had and the fresh milk that she uh, drank straight from the pail and the, the fresh, fresh butter. butter. Yeah. Yeah, the butter. Uh, so I heard those stories and that, uh, and I, I'm forever grateful for that yeah, as well. Yeah, that's so wonderful. How about for you? You know, for me, I don't know that I have a particular relationship with Passover being this moment or this time to rally. So much as I think of Passover in the Jewish year, the cycle. And one of my, I would say, my favorite part of being in the Jewish tradition is the cycle of the year and reflecting each year on where were you last year and checking in with yourself, checking in with your world, checking in with your family. Um, and where were you last Passover? And where were you last Rosh Hashanah? And um, and that feeling that starts to come when you know Passover's coming and what starts to happen in your body and then what starts to happen in your memories. Um, and so I don't, I think I don't particularly separate Passover, even though I totally see all the potential in the world. Um, but part of what it is, is I spent years going to women's satyrs, queer satyrs, social justice satyrs. I've been to satyr in Palestine. I've been to satyrs um, in, in Jerusalem. I've been to satyrs in so many places. And each year, it's like this new opportunity to engage with this thing, right? This, this potential. And where I am celebrating is always really informative about where I am and where I am and how I am relating to my wider world and what's important to me. And so I do think that the conversations we have on Passover are have the potential to be very opening and very uh, meaningful. But I also think that I've been a lot of different places for Passover, and sometimes I'm involved in conversations that I'm facilitating that are about really meaningful topics about justice, and sometimes I'm a guest at someone's home, and that is not what's going on, and that's also okay. Um, And I used to, I swear, I think I used to go to like four or five seders a year, and I really had to cut that back also for my own sanity, and once you get into the gefilte fish business and Passover starts in January, you sort of really need to commit. (laughs) By the third day of Passover, seders are done, you're kind of like, okay, folks, like see ya you know and um 
that's not true. I like the week of Passover a lot, but the intentional eating and all of that. But um, so I think of Passover as this, I don't want to say culmination, but I would say it's a real highlight of the Jewish year, a real highlight of the Jewish cycle. And, um, and I, but I, I think it's, it's the same as all these other things. I think a lot about social justice on Yom Kippur. I think Yom Kippur is the time when you make a personal commitment about things you're doing and you stand with your community and you make commitments about what you want to do. So I find that holiday has so much resonance also around justice. Um, And the stories of the, you know, Jews leaving Egypt, you know, I know it's our job to remember and feel as if we were there, but it's not, I don't know if sitting around the table, it's like not the easiest thing to do. Um, some some years that that I was just thinking about because that is exactly what spurred me to want to talk about the stories of other peoples at our Seder yeah I think one of the challenges is that for a lot of people and so my own family like Passover really just means like I I said earlier just coming together as family and eating right and then oh and there's this thing we have to do that's like we have to get through this story Mm -hmm. so when trying to introduce some of these ideas with my own family, it's just been, they're just like, why, why are we reading these things? We're just like, when are we eating the fruit gels? Like, when are we eating like, <laughs> like, like these foods? And yeah. like, you know, it's, yeah. and, it, and it, 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 even the Jewish meaning of it is meaningless, right? It, it's just yeah. really an excuse to get together. I mean, um, most of, it's one of the most um, widely observed Jewish practices, eating at a Seder table, but how many people are actually doing it with intention, whether it's Jewish intention or then bringing in this other intention. So I, I love that. And I also see this is the danger of the of operating in symbols as, as Jewish tradition so often does is things don't feel relevant. They don't feel grounded in reality. And so that's uh, something that always bothered me about Passover. And sort of when Liz was speaking, I was some of what she was saying was resonating is it feels so abstract. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the symbolic... The mortar is symbolized by these mm-hmm. chopped up walnuts and uh, apples and right. a little bit of Manischewitz wine. It's like, and the saltwater tears that were, uh, you know, the crying and you're eating parsley dipped in saltwater. You're like, this is actually quite good, you know? Or like you're eating like uh, eggs dipped in saltwater. You're like, oh, this is like the salt adds so much to it, but you're supposed to remember the tears of it. And so there's something about um, that. I, 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 I think there is something so powerful about breaking bread. And I think so often that... Um, so often that the Seder is just a bunch of Jews talking about these ideas together, and that's the problem. And I think that having, you know, these symbolic freedom Seders is also, you know, it, it doesn't feel stale. It feels mm-hmm. forced and contrived. And so how do you really break bread together, really, you know, dive, dive into in. this stuff, yeah. really talk about justice, bring in the food piece and, and using sustainable ingredients, using... Um, uh, you know, foods that, I mean, talking about preservation, uh, our, our pickled foods and uh, pickling for Passover, which started in July back in Eastern Europe, also as part of, um, you know, in, in the context of uh, uh, going from times of scarcity to time, uh, times of abundance to times of scarcity, thinking about that in the context of global warming and modern refrigeration and the amount of waste we have. There's so much content, so much. but how to get to it in a way, and I, I, I just feel like from what the Seder means, for so many American Jews, I feel like is like it's hard to get to that place, and I want to get to that in some ways. And I found that I've seen the wall that my family hits. Like I've seen them like cannot process. Wait, other liberation stories? We just have to get through the seder so we can eat. Like it's, and so I um so I, I this is just a tension that I feel yeah. and a struggle around how to infuse meaning into it. Yeah. Well, I think I mean I want to bring us back to the food because we have to wrap up, and so of course we should end with the food. So. 
to take us out, we have these pickles and this, is this pickled herring here? It's pickled herring, yeah. Pickled herring is, is really part of the Ashkenazi canon. Um, there was a historian or an explorer who wrote about the Jews in Poland um, saying every Jew eats a, a herring a day. Um, it was, you know, these fish that could be packed and salted and, and transported. Um, I put this in the stinky food category of Ashkenazi food. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't really want to open up a jar of herring on the subway. You know, people right. would not be happy. You certainly wouldn't want to pack herring in your school lunch. And, um, and I find that it, it's definitely a division. So people who love Ashkenazi food and know it love herring. Yeah. Um, it's kind of big in the more observant communities. But your mainstream, suburban, Ashkenazi Jew maybe has never even had her herring and thinks of it a little bit more as a butt of jokes. So, uh, you know, like all good foods, we want to reclaim them. And uh, we're just excited about it. And I, I find that herring does not need anything fancy. Um, this classic vinegar pickled, a little bit sweet pickled herring is my favorite. My dad likes the creamed herring, which I find... Horrifying, I like this. I just had a little piece. It's delicious. It's delicious. It's very, it's very good. I it's mean, really it's really good. And actually, once I remember when we were preparing for the for the cookbook, I had people over to do a herring tasting, and I went to I lived in Crown Heights at the time, and I went to the grocery store and I bought every herring that they had, like every taste. And I was sitting there, and I had invited people over. My brother says, "I just don't understand why we're not eating this all the time. I mean, this is like." the healthiest food. I feel so invigorated because it's also like a Nordic cuisine, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, and somehow we're, we think of it as like grandfather food, but it's like healthy Nordic cuisine too. Yes. So no. go herring. Thank you both so much. This was great. Thanks, Thank Tegan. Thanks, Tegan. This we was awesome. We had a great time. For more info about this episode, including links to everything we talked about, recipes and photos, as well as all our past shows, go to thetableunderground.com. You can also listen wherever you get your podcasts. After recording this interview, I decided to look up the true story about the orange on the Seder plate, and it turns out it's a bit of an urban myth. It was actually a woman, Susanna Heschel, who decided to use an orange to represent the inclusion of gay and lesbian peoples in Judaism. And Liz was right. There really was something about a rabbi and bread on the Seder plate. You can find the link to the real story on our website as well. It's really interesting. If you celebrate Passover, we'd love to hear about how you're planning to mark this holiday or do a Seder in quarantine. You can share in the comments on our website or on social media. We also have a bunch of links to virtual Passover resources on our website as well. Our next episode will focus on the many ways that people are addressing food issues during the COVID-19 crisis. If you have questions or want to share any personal stories about food in your home or in your community from this pandemic time, you can record them using the voice memo on your phone. Just hold it up to your ear like you're talking to me on the phone and email the sound file to tagan, that's spelled T-A-G-A-N, at thetableunderground.com, or you can send it through a Facebook or Instagram message. I hope this show brought you some joy and wishing you all the best during this challenging time. Thanks for listening. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. Really good. Very good. Mm. You don't think they're so good? Not yeah, good. Fine. I like them. Yeah. They don't feel alive. Not as good as your homemade pickles. Well, not as like good homemade pickle, but there's um, we have a friend, a Polish chef, who used to say a good, them. good Polish pickle, which is also turns out a good Jewish pickle. <laughs> should punch you in the face with garlic. That's fair. I don't feel punched. I want to feel punched, um, but also. Um,
there's an effervescence. You're listening to WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM in New Haven.